Welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? We are back with the topic of lead us not to the test. We're going to talk about a test that has a single question today. Each individual faces a trial and the trial consists of one question. We face this trial today and every day of our life. At some point, we all get to play the part of Pontius Pilate when he is forced to face Jesus. In the trial of Jesus, it's not actually Jesus who is on trial, but the world, and Pilate acts as the stand-in for every one of us. Now, most of us know there is corruption in the world. We've heard all the stories of the wealthy getting away with murder, sometimes literally, and corruption within both political parties. We know of suffering and pain. That doesn't make any sense. We observe many religious Pharisees acting like hypocrites, and we see wealthy American Herodians being morally corrupt in every way. America, like Pontius Pilate, for all its claims to virtue, real and imagined, must confront Jesus someday and will have to decide on how to answer this test. We all get to stand like Pilate, not giving the trial, but in the chair of the defendant. We may think we're giving the trial, but we are actually the defendant. When Jesus said, lead us not to the test, in the Lord's Prayer, he didn't mention that the test is only one question and that it only has one answer. Another translation is, do not bring us to the time of trial. The one we hear most common in English is, lead us not into temptation. So trial, test, temptation, in all cases, we ask God to help us steer clear of it. And what is this test? We are there. We are taking this test every day, but we only come to understand the test when we come to forks in the road or decision points in our lives. In good times and in bad times, the trial comes out to meet you in different ways. We ask God to lead us not to this test, but because of our desires, we like to go looking for this test and we all find the test eventually. Even if we're taking it every day, we're not aware of it, but at some point we do become aware of it. Now, how we answer this test question says everything about us. How we answer it guides our day. It guides our choices, our feelings, our reactions, our heart, our family, our career, our evenings, our mornings, our meals. Judgment Day will actually be very easy for God to carry out because we answer this test all the time. The test question is this one. It's the one that Pilate asked to Jesus, which is ironic because Pilate is the one actually on trial. This here is the only question on the test. What is truth? That's the whole test. It requires a response and not just verbally or mentally, but in our actions. So this is both an oral and a practical exam. The, the test question is what is truth? In our age, that single question draws many responses. What is truth brings long responses based on logic and even more so illogic with sweeping topics of historical analysis and tales of heroes and villains and victims, windy arguments, appeals to emotion and appeals to reason. But God can stop all test takers after the very first word out of their mouths because the only answer he is looking for is Jesus. You can tell how fragmented a person is, how compromised, how scattered, and how lost 
by how this one question is answered. If you ask someone what is truth and they start rambling, they are the lost sheep. Pray for them and pray for yourself and pray for us all because even if we think we are not lost, that we are found, even if we answer this question correctly, we, are, we very likely fail the practical part of this exam, which is our lives. This is important to recognize. Even if you answered with the name, the correct word, Jesus, it is your actions in life that answer for you. By the time you arrive at judgment, God already knows your answer. You gave it already. And anyone who claims or claimed verbally that Jesus is the truth, but rejected him in spirit and did not actually follow him along the way, will be exposed. We are more than our mind. We live in the age where we obsess with our mind. We forget that we are body and soul. We are God's instruments with a mind, but also with arms and legs. If we just assert belief in our mind, that's not quite enough. We have to do something about it. Did that belief animate our body or just sit boxed up in our head? So there's no weaselly appeal to be made to the higher court. The creator God is the final stop. And that last stop ends on Judgment Day for everyone. Like the rich man in hell, the parable of the rich man in hell, who begged for Abraham to go back and tell his brothers to repent, that request will not be honored, as Jesus said in the parable. We have had our chance. We already have been told and warned, and still we choose to ignore the Creator. Even if we acknowledge that God exists, we probably only acknowledge it like we acknowledge everything else. We grant God the same significance of other facts like existence of gravity. Gravity exists, and so what? Admitting God exists is like admitting any other fact that you might accept. Seasons change. Cats are funny. Gravity exists. We can declare that God exists and even say that Jesus is the truth, and then we can proceed to give it the same level of respect that we give to any other fact. God exists, water exists, now back to cat videos. Agreement to the notion of a creator is not the question. So this is a pass-fail test. And God exists is an automatic fail if that's all you've got. If you feel unsure about what is truth, then you are probably adrift. You are either in the camp of what Jesus called the whitewashed tombs, trying to save yourself with some long-winded answer of what is truth, or you might be in denial thinking that some of your sins are acceptable. So if you are unsure whether you are a sinner or not, you are waffling on the fence, and the fence is electric, and at some point the power is going to get turned on, and you will feel it. You cannot answer this question. You cannot just answer Jesus to the test question, if you do not come to know your sins and that you are a sinner. And that means all of your sins, including the ones you'd like to keep and defend as honorable and tell yourself, maybe they're not that bad. Maybe they don't hurt anyone. That's, that's uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's what that is. So that is the slippery slope of how things, uh, dis, how dishonoring God moves into the mainstream. This straddling half measure is how the poor patterns spread its way through your life and a nation. It's how habitual sin works. This is how the values of something like Mardi Gras move into Lent. 
This is how the, as I've said in other uh, episodes on here, the sandbox database becomes the production database. Chaos is near when the sacred cannot be separated from the rest of the world. So um, you have to prepare for impact at the, on the end of your life if that's the way you're going. It's, it's going to have a long road for you. Um, I would say put your head between your knees and uh, don't kiss your ass goodbye. Put your head between your knees and pray. The conscience is silenced by celebrating your desires. And the conscience is the little voice of God, the great gift of your good guardian angel. You may have answered this question correctly long ago, but have slipped in recent times. This is how habitual sin works. The first step of turning away from God is in that first sip of beer, the first toke on a joint, the first kiss, the first bribe that you get away with, the first flirtation with someone else who you're not supposed to be flirting with. The taboo is removed and then a further step is taken. So you retreat and advance and once you start to enjoy that thing, the sin, the conquest begins. And then you get into a regular commerce with the sin, transacting your moods on it, and trading, really, your body and your soul for that. And after that, the slide quickens. The turning away begins to happen a little faster and becomes more permanent. Your neck gets stiff, you can't turn back. The drink or the touch or the bribe becomes an expected luxury and then a common occurrence and eventually an expectation. And once it starts to bear itself out as a problem, you will intellectualize it, rationalize it, justify it, saying some version of uh, one of these sayings that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. That's a great quote, except it won't explain the blackout you had the night before or whatever happened in the bar that shouldn't have happened. Um, science, especially genetics, makes a good brush for us to paint ourselves with virtue for something to be embraced uh, we can use deft strokes of psychology or sociology uh, or nature and nurture arguments. And then when someone asks us, is doing X a sin? You have a full paint palette at the ready, just like you do when faced with the ultimate test. And that question on the test is what again? What is truth? So in the last phase, in the last phase of habitual sin, you settle into the sin and like Gollum with his ring in the Lord of the Rings, the precious, He's like a ghoul who cannot see himself moving into decline and collapse. So this whole cycle happens to individuals and to groups of people and even to nations. Um, if no chainsaw event miraculously cuts people free or nations free from these growing vines, then the decline and collapse process will keep covering up the person or the country until it basically becomes its, its own grave. You need to break free but you can't without help. So if you're lucky, a forest fire will burn away the brambles around you. Some, some storm in life will do it, help you get there. Uh, often the only way out of habitual sin that has taken root in your body and soul is to be burned free of it somehow. Um, like a prescribed burn is done to refresh a prairie. Uh, they use fire to remove the weeds and the invasive species. You must feel the fire of the spirit to reawaken your heart and be generated new. Uh, to return to the faith of a child, to start again, to be reborn, like Jesus said, we must become awake to the fact that the things that we thought we wanted were not the right things. Otherwise, habitual sin will remain just that, a habit. 
The real trick is realizing the things you think you want are not what you want. In other words, you may want the wrong things. American culture has ceased approving of these prescribed burns that renew people. We've silenced a lot of voices that tell us certain things are wrong. And we've done a wondrous job intellectualizing most of our sins now. The universities seem very fixated on saying all sins are okay. And that's not a good thing. Um, if you, I'm talking specifically about the humanities, not like the hard sciences of biology and physics and, and chemistry. Although even those are getting infiltrated. Uh, we're no longer afraid of God because we think he's not real. That's been the long, slow path that we've been on for 500 years or so. Unsurprisingly, we no longer worry about sin because we think that too is not real. We kind of wink when we say God or sin as in like, yeah, right. These, but these things go together. It's, it's a really strange thing. Understanding God, understanding sin, uh, they go together just like understanding your body and your soul go together. Um, the reason the Hebrews said, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is because you won't understand God until you know how weak you are. And most of us don't think we are very weak. We think we're very strong. But I often think it's just because we're so comfortable in our houses, heated and air-conditioned houses with plenty of food. Um, we live in a bubble of affluence and we misunderstand how weak we are. But we will likely learn, we all get to learn it, um, especially when we're elderly. Um, affluence is, is an illusion that turns us away from God and the truth because even I, I can assume that this comfort and strength is all I, it's all under my control somehow. And this is the same reason that strong young men are really cocky while hunched over old men are humble. Or uh, very beautiful young women can seem arrogant and an elderly woman doesn't have that air. They've gone through a lot of experiences in life and their bodies are now more frail. They don't have the same uh, physical characteristics. They start to see there's more to life. Um, we can be fooled by muscles and our looks. We can think we have undeniable strength or beauty, but the decades roll along and atrophy instructs us with reality of time and space as we are creatures in a universe living in time and space, unlike God. Now, only when the plane is about to crash do some of us awaken. And that is an experience many people have on an airplane. I've had it when the turbulence was so bad that I started to think about God. And this was when I was falling away. And it even came up to me then. I was like, this could be the end. What, what have I done with my life? <laughs> you get into that state on an airplane very easily when the turbulence gets wild. Uh, so that is when poor choices of who we chose to follow in life uh, suddenly can get outed as frauds because on an airplane you have zero control. There's a pilot flying. You don't know if he's going to land it or not. Now those who follow Jesus do not have the same problem even when the plane crashes into the mountain. This is because they know the answer to the test question. And if they really know that answer, then they have imitated the man, Jesus, fully divine, fully human, as best as they could. That means you can't not be exactly like Jesus, but you can try. So whatever rock you hit, whatever end you arrive at, there's no need to worry if you know that Jesus is the truth. Fear of the Lord will get you started on the path to the truth, and Jesus removes that fear. 
That's the amazing thing. The paradox of control that I talk about a fair amount on here. You have to give up control in order to get any kind of control. You have to realize your weakness to have any kind of real strength. So knowing your weakness in order to understand what is really meant by God, um, then you can see the dragon and you will know the need for God. You know, fear of the dragon will lead you to God who is far, far more powerful than any earthly or even spiritual dragon. But knowing that the dragon is real and that the dragon will kill you um, is a, a real awakening moment. And that's when you may surrender. And what happens then? Jesus will slay the dragon for you. He will lay it down like a kitten. But you can't tame that dragon alone and Jesus won't do it with you until you recognize and accept your own weakness and sinfulness. Surrender is the only way to enlist the army of the angels and saints to help you. So we are in a climate of uh, where the clouds are darkening. Um, I often talk about the Tower of Babel, of course. The tower seems to be nearly complete once again, as there seems to be nothing we can't do as human beings. And our lives bear out our own paper-thin truth. We deny ourselves nothing. We are told that we can do anything, that we can be anything. And we proclaim this loudly. And that is exactly the third fall in the book of Genesis. So everything is permitted when truth no longer exists except in our mind. Everything is upside down and inside out. And the only real truth that comes out of it in the end is the same pre-Christian bulldozer of might makes right. You hear this message today a lot of taking the power. And while some lament the old power fading of European uh, whiteness as the old ruler, that's the villain, uh, you now hear the ascendant wokeness replacing it. What neither side of this volleyball game realizes is that whichever side in that struggle wins, it's the same outcome. Because neither one is answering what is truth with the word Jesus. The underlying rejection of God will result in one side on top and the other complaining. And we will again be living in a world of rules for thee, but not for me. Just like the Epsteins and the Trumps and the Clintons and the Bezos and Gates families do today. Do not let their power fool you. Those who think that their oppressor has been Christianity probably have no clue about Jesus, the living God. Evil done under the guise of Christianity is the same as evil done under any other ideology. So when that question comes to you of what is truth, you should fix your eyes on Jesus, follow him, and you won't sink. As I always say with this, why did Peter sink? Because he took his eyes off Jesus. How did he get saved? He cried out for help and Jesus reached for his hand. That's it for today on Why Did Peter Sink? I hope to see you back here soon with another episode and I'll try to keep them shorter and sweeter than some of my long ones I've had recently. But I will have another long series coming up soon on the Tower of Babel. See you later.